to those of you here at the Northville campus with me, and hello for the first time to all of you at the Farmington Hills campus with Pastor Sean, and hello to everybody uh, today who's watching online today. Welcome. Today we resume our study, our year-long study of the New Testament book of Acts. In, the, in September, we started chapter by chapter and theme by theme. We took a break for the Christmas season. We took another break for Easter and the Sundays following Easter. And today, we pick up where we left off nine weeks ago. And over the next four Sundays, we will cover the final chapters of the New Testament book of Acts. Acts, you remember, is the story of the birth and expansion of the church in the first century. And in the early chapters, we read about the fragile beginnings of this fledgling movement, and we examined their core convictions and values and foundations. And in the early days, it was in Jerusalem among Jewish people, people similar culturally. And then we saw in Acts kind of section two, the gospel goes uh, regional and now goes to people who are similar culturally, but also different some ways culturally. And the church begins to experience some conflict and tension, but the church handles it in healthy, God-honoring ways. And then kind of the third section of the book of Acts, the church goes global and goes to the entire known world. And the Apostle Paul had a lot to, to do with it going to all the known world. He was the evangelist, the church planter, the traveler. And when people talk about the, the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul, they will talk about Paul's missionary journeys, three or four of them, depending on how you count. I don't know if you can see this map from where you sit. A lot of lines here mapping out all of his journeys. Of course, the church is headquartered in Paul's day in Jerusalem that's here, but he is from Antioch up here, and all of the journeys are kind of a loop. He took his first missionary journey kind of here from Antioch, returning there. Second one from Jerusalem and a big loop here, and he goes to places you likely have heard of, uh, Ephesus, uh, Thessalonica, Philippi, Corinth, Athens, and he makes a loop and then comes back to Jerusalem. He does a third loop going back to a lot of the places he'd been before to encourage them, to strengthen them. He is an apostle. He's an evangelist. He's a church starter. Uh, he's a discipler. And, uh, and he always wanted to make it to the city of Rome. Now, all of this is Roman Empire in Paul's day, but he always wanted to go to the city of Rome, to the heart of the Roman Empire. He thought the gospel could get to the heart of the empire, and maybe the gospel would even one day get to the emperor himself. But Paul was always waylaid from going to Rome. Plans always took him a different direction. Now, there is a line here going to Rome, and this is where we start our story today. Paul's in Jerusalem, and we're going to see him go from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and then eventually Paul goes to Rome. Now, you notice this little dotted line here. It is not a loop. It's not circular. The apostle Paul's life will end in Rome. The great evangelist and apostle will make it to Rome as a prisoner, and that will be his final days. So let's, let's uh, pray, and then we'll talk about the text of the day. Oh God, be for us once more our teacher and guide. Speak to us through your infallible scriptures. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up where we left off nine weeks ago. The Apostle Paul is heading to Jerusalem, and his counselors uh, don't want him to go to Jerusalem. It's too dangerous. The city's too hot at that time. And, uh, and Pastor Terrence told us nine weeks ago, there's uh, some 
fair amount of scholarly debate. Was Paul right to ignore his counselors? Doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to surround ourselves with wise counselors? Or was he correct to follow his gut, to do what he felt the Lord was telling him to do and to go it alone? In any case, it's clear that God is orchestrating the steps of the Apostle Paul. Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and his counselors were all correct. A Jewish mob attacks Paul and say that he is a traitor to Judaism. Roman troops are sent in to break up the fight, and they arrest Paul. And in essence, arresting Paul actually saves Paul's life. So Paul's life is saved by the evil Roman Empire, a twist in the plot. And Paul says to the soldiers, listen, I'm Jewish. Those are my people. This is all a huge misunderstanding. Let me speak to them. And the soldiers agree. And so Paul stands up and gives a speech to his fellow Jews. Brothers and sisters, I am a Jew just like you. I have studied the the scriptures just like you. And then he tells the story that he has told many times around the world, the story that's retold multiple times in the book of Acts, his own story of conversion. He tells them, I was once a persecutor of those who followed the way. I hunted them down. And then on the road to Damascus, a bright light came and I fell to my knees and from the sky I heard this voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I said, who are you? And the voice said, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you persecute. What must I do? I said. And the voice said, get up, be baptized, obey me, and I will send you as my witness. It's a story that he has told many times. At the end of the story, it says the people raised their voices and they shouted. Now, what do you think they shouted? Thank you, Paul, for clearing that up. (laughs) Paul is one of us after all. No, they did not shout those things. Here's what they shouted. Let's look at that uh, verse. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Have you ever received a worse reception than that? Some of you are worried about sharing your faith with people because you're worried how people will respond. You can't do worse than the Apostle Paul. I have given many horrible sermons throughout the years and never once did the congregation raise their voices and say, he's not fit to live. Um, They say kind things like, at least he gave it a try. You know, he gave it a shot. Even Paul is surprised at their negative, hostile reaction. He must have been thinking, I have told that same story all over the world, and it usually slays. And that story really works every place I've been. Now, now, uh, so it isn't always the message or the delivery that goes wrong. It can be the context, the environment, or the timing that creates a hostile reception. Paul is back in prison. He's discouraged, and the Lord does a very loving thing. The very next day, the following night, after this horrible reception, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is Paul's dream to go to Rome. And the Lord says, you are going to get to Rome. I promise you, take courage. Paul's about to enter a very dark season. For the next five years, he will be incarcerated. 
first in Jerusalem, where we are at this point in the story, then in Caesarea, and then finally in Rome. He will live his final days in chains. And no sooner had the Lord said, take courage, when we read that a group of 40 zealots formed a conspiracy, formed a plot, and bound themselves with a vow not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. That's, that's a committed group. A strange kind of vow. These are not run-of-the-mill enthusiasts. These are terrorists. These are zealots. And intervention came again in a most surprising way. The line says, when, 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 uh, when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Now, this line raises lots of questions for any student of the Bible. Paul had a sister? How come we never heard about her before? And why is Paul's nephew in Jerusalem? Because they probably didn't live in Jerusalem. Paul's family is in Tarsus. Was the nephew a Christian? Did the nephew call Paul uh, uh, Uncle Apostle Paul or just Uncle Paul? We don't know these things. We do know that God is using this young man. There's a plot against Paul, but there is a plot beneath the plot at play. It's no mistake that he's in the right place at the right time and willing to do the right thing. So the nephew tells Paul and tells the commander, and the Roman commander decides to move Paul to a new location for his own safety. This is what it says. Then the commander called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers. 200 soldiers. How many guys are they moving to Caesarea? One. <laughs> 200 soldiers to move one Jewish guy. 200 uh, soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Governor Felix, that name might not be familiar with you. He's the guy that replaced his predecessor, a more familiar name, Pontius Pilate. This is the new governor in town. That's a lot of horsepower for one guy. First, God uses a young man, Paul's nephew, to help Paul. And then he uses a commander in the Roman army, very unusual, and then he uses a Roman detachment of the army itself to move Paul safely to Caesarea. God is keeping God's promises. There is a plot at play, but there is a plot beneath the plot. God is, has a larger plan that is at play in ways that even Paul cannot see. I want to make three observations about how God works to keep his promises to Paul and to you and to me. First observation is this. God fulfills God's promises even when circumstances suggest otherwise. Paul has this powerful visitation of the Lord who says, take courage, you are going to go to Rome. I'm going to make it to Rome. And the very next day, there's a plot against Paul's life, and it seems like the promise is at risk. And Paul wasn't the first person who had to trust in God's promises, even when all the evidence is to the contrary. God said to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and that his offspring would be too numerous to count. But then right after that promise, Abraham and Sarah are plunged into a season of infertility, to the place where having a child becomes to them laughable. The prophet Samuel anoints a young shepherd boy named David and says he's going to be the next king of Israel. And you know what happened the next day? Nothing. 
David went right back to the fields for many days. This would take years in the making. And then David finally gets a job in the palace and it seems like the promise is moving along but then he ends up hated by the king and he will spend 10 years in waiting and hiding. 10 years. Jesus himself bows to pray in the garden of Gethsemane knowing one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But right now he is in personal agony. He's sweating drops of blood and he's begging the Father, if it be the Father's will, to let this cup of suffering pass from him. There's often a waiting period between the promise and the fulfillment. And when the waiting period is especially long or especially difficult, we begin to doubt the promise. We begin to doubt God. So what do we do in the waiting and the doubt? What do we do when we feel more like a target of the enemy than the apple of God's eye? What do we do? Well, you live by the words that you received from the Lord earlier, right? You don't doubt in the darkness what God revealed to you in the light. You walk by faith, not by sight. You trust, right? God fulfills God's promises even when the circumstances suggest otherwise, Now, uh, second observation. God often fulfills God's promises in different ways than we expect. God promises Paul that he's going to make it to Rome, but I don't think Paul had any idea that he would go to Rome as a prisoner, that that's how he'd make it there, in chains. And when Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9, God also promised that Paul would testify among kings. And in this last journey toward Rome, Paul will testify in front of multiple kings. And when he gets to Rome, he will testify before the emperor himself. God will fulfill God's promises, but I don't think it looked anything like Paul expected it would look. And younger people tend to have a firm plan. Older people sometimes understand better that plans change, sometimes dramatically, and it's okay. God does not meet our expectations, and it's okay, because our expectations were flawed to begin with. One couple I heard about had realistic expectations. They were an elderly couple who decided to marry late in life. George was 92 years old, Jane was 89, and they went for a stroll to discuss their wedding plans, and they passed by a drugstore, and they went inside, and George asked to speak to the owner of the drugstore. Uh, and told the owner, we're getting married, George said. Do you sell heart medicine? Of course we do, the owner replied. What about medicine for, for rheumatism and osteoporosis and arthritis? All kinds of medicines, said the owner. What about waterproof furniture covers and Depends? Yes, sir, we have all those things. Joy, what about hearing aids, uh, denture supplies, reading glasses? Uh, we, we, we got them. Uh, do you sell wheelchairs and walkers and canes? Sure, but uh, why all these questions? And George smiled and proudly announced, we'd like to use your store for our bridal registry. <laughs> yeah, on a more uh, serious note... When we get older, we sometimes discover that God's plan is different than our plan. And as a message of hope, especially to those who are younger among us, how many of us at some point in your life had a dramatic shift in what you thought was the plan for your life? Something happened that you did not see coming. The loss of a job, the demise of a marriage, 
the death of a spouse or child. Maybe you found yourself raising a grandchild. Maybe you were incarcerated like the Apostle Paul. Whatever it was, it took your plans for your life and threw them out the window. And yet, in hindsight, you would stand today and say, God is good and faithful and God keeps his promises. If you've had experience like that where your plans got thrown out the window and you think God keeps his promises, God was faithful, would you stand to your feet just to encourage those who haven't crossed that yet? I want everybody to see who you are, who's been through that, look around the room. Uh, These folks know what this is. Stand to your feet. Thank you. Um, Great. I think everybody standing to their feet right now would want to say to everybody uh, here today and everybody watching online, They'd want to say, God will fulfill God's promises, and it's going to be different than you thought. God will fulfill his promises, and it's going to look different than you thought. Thank you for your testimony. You you may be seated. And thirdly and lastly, here's the third observation. God often fulfills God's promises through ordinary means. Now, in the earlier chapters of the book of Acts, Peter was the one in prison, and God sent an earthquake and an angel. Why does God not do that when the apostle Paul is in prison? He doesn't send an earthquake or an angel. He sends his sister's son. And Paul could have said, hey, thank you, sister's son. Thank you, nephew. That's very well-meaning, but I'm waiting for an earthquake. I'm waiting for a miracle. Um, No, Paul did not say that. Paul said, hey, thank you, nephew, for your gift of eavesdropping. Uh, you know, tell the plot to the commander, Paul was wise enough to see his nephew as the miracle sent by God. God comes in the ordinary ways. And then God uses a Roman commander. And then God uses Roman soldiers. Regular sinful people and regular sinful institutions were used by God. And the timing of it all, too, orchestrated by God. I was thinking about this as it relates to how we found some of our newer staff members at Ward Church. Donald Kane, our new contemporary worship leader, um, did not initially apply for this job. He didn't know about this job. His family came to this building for the first time when they were invited by friends to a child's birthday party at the Playscape. And Donald and his wife, Kanika, here for that birthday party, looked around the building and said, this looks like a church that really cares about kids. And so they came the very next Sunday. And the very next Sunday, as fate would have it, they passed by some really friendly people in the hallway, and they sat in this very room next to some very friendly people who made them feel uh, very welcome. And they thought, this is a really wonderful church. And then Kanika reads about the opening for a part-time worship leader. And Donald is a music teacher for high school. And he's done a lot of work in church. And Kanika gave him the elbow in the side. And he applied. And the rest is history. Now, I think, what if they hadn't gone to that birthday party? What, what, if, what if they hadn't sat next to the right friendly people on their first Sunday here? What if Kanika didn't have elbows? You know, all those ordinary situations move to match in a supernatural way. Terrence Gray and I were introduced by a mutual friend. I just happened to be telling my pastor friend who lives in another state about some of our young pastors who had recently spread their wings and taken senior pastor posts in other parts of the country. And my friend knew Terrence and knew that he was wrapping up his church planting work in the city of Memphis and that he had been advised by his counselors to join a staff team. 
And the timing for Terence and for us worked out perfectly. And I believe the timing was orchestrated by God who cares for all parties, who cares for everybody. What if I had not been complaining to my friend on the phone that day? What if Terence's timing had been different? Right? God is in control. And though it looks like this world is out of control, and though it feels sometimes like your life is out of control, God is moving to fulfill his promises to you. It may not look like what you thought it would. He may use ordinary people, circumstances, and institutions, but you can trust him. This is good news. And we're going to pick up the story of Paul's journey to Rome next Sunday when we gather outside for worship. Next Sunday, outside the journey of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Dear God, you are the promise-making, promise-keeping God. Help us to trust in seasons of waiting. We surrender our feeble plans to your good purposes. Great is thy faithfulness. This we pray to the strong name of Jesus Christ, our shepherd. Amen.